like because as a fan, when you met Patrick Stewart, I cried. I I cried so many times. I cried so many times that the contact lens person thought that my contact lenses were irritating my eyes. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making it in this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and today's guest is a phenomenal actor who's been on The Good Place, The Magician, Santa Clarita Diet, Star Trek Picard, and many more. It's the one and only Dominic Burgess. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Good. And for the listeners who do not know Dominic, you're missing out, but also this is not a put-upon accent. He's not trying to impress you with his amazing British accent. This is his speaking voice. He it's hails, my real voice. He hails from Stoke-on-Trent. That's right. Well done. You've done your research. Unless you remembered, like a good friend. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say I remember. Let's say I'm okay, that sure. good. I love, I love that you're from Stoke-on-Trent because it's clearly an area most, I would say most Americans would not be aware of. But it also sounds so British. And there's two hyphens in it. It's Stoke hyphen on hyphen Trent, which is right. just, if, if you were to make up a town in, in the UK, I feel like that is kind of what you're going for. It's kind of like a planet name on something like Star Wars, where there's lots of apostrophes and hyphens and all that kind of jargon going on. Yes. Stoke the, on Trent. They're on the Stoke on Trent system. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. It sounds really good. Gonna pitch that. Yeah, just write a little fanfic until it becomes canon. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna put it on the map, the galactic map. Dominic has been a consistent working actor and also a consistent, amazing friend. Oh, thank you. Uh, we've known each other <laughs> now for about what? Like maybe even over a decade or so. Oh, and probably around that. Yeah, it's gotta be. I moved here 13 years ago and I jumped straight into improv training pretty much as soon as I got here. And then I must have met you maybe mid 2008. Yeah, that would make sense. So, yeah, a little over a decade. That's incredible. Yeah. Just a person who you. You watch perform. I've seen him do improv and sketch, and I've seen him in all his various shows. And you just go, "Oh, okay, this is what a talented, hardworking person is." Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. He's also the, he's also <laughs> very blushing. Humble. You can yeah, you can't see it, but I'm sure you can hear the tones of blushing and eye rolls because of you know someone gets that good. They they also come with a good amount of being humble about it but I'm, I'm happy to brag about my talented friends. But I've always been curious because we never really like, we're in this business together and we mm-hmm. go through it, but rarely do you ever like sit down and, and talk to the ups and downs or like the, the you know, scary side of it or the uncertainty. And I've just been curious with some of my friends and even you, like, have you thought about it? And do you even want to be rich and famous? Like that level of like, can't leave your house like is that something you've ever thought about dreamed about or where, where do you kind of put yourself on that map no i uh i mean i'm i'm lucky i love uh, i'm fortunate that i'm i'm working and I, I bounce around from from thing to thing um i would love to i you know i'd love to be on a, a show or a film 
for, for sort of an extended period of time. I'm when I work, I'm usually popping into an episode for a week or a couple of days, and then I'll pop back up uh, another year later for a week or a couple of days. My ideal would be uh, working with, um, you know, like a family unit for a nice long period of time, just being able to to live. I mean, I'm fortunate. I'm living uh, a good, happy, healthy life. I have five cats. I have a roof over my head. I, if I want to watch a film, I can watch a film. You know, I'm I'm not struggling by any means, and so I'm, I know I'm very fortunate. And sometimes people will recognize me and say, "Oh, it's the guy from the Flash," or it's uh, whatever it is, which is really nice, but not swamped by any means, which I feel would give me uh, a lot of anxiety. I trailed off so much there. Oh no, this is enjoy. Totally- it's totally fine. Um, but yeah, you're not interested in being bombarded. That that part of it, the like constant recognition, but you would like almost to be a consistent recurring on a on a show. So you almost you would like to live in that space a little longer. When you're a guest star actor, you sort of have to feel out every job very differently when you arrive to a set and sort of feel out if the set is warm and if it's okay to approach other people and have conversations with people or if it's a set where you know you get there and you learn your lines and you sit in your little corner and you just do the job and then you go home and if it sometimes it's a set and it feels very tense and it feels like (laughs) something's happening but you're never privy to that information because you're not a part of you know the the big ensemble so it's always uh, as a as a guest star, it's a different experience every time. I get what you're saying because if you are on the show or in the, I guess, main ensemble of the cast, you then have a little bit of effect of the feeling of the set. Mm-hmm. So if the set is tense, you can do everything on your part to make any guests relax. But when you are the guest, you're at the whims of whatever is going mm-hmm. on. And hopefully you've been on more sets where it's, you know, friendly and polite and a good Oh, time, yeah. But. Um, something happened, when was it? Two, three, maybe four years ago now. Um, I was very fortunate in one pilot season, I was hired as a, a guest star on two different pilots. And they were effectively the same show. They were workplace comedies. And um, it was exactly the same structure. It was multicam. And I went to one table read and you walked in the room and it was the first time that, that the cast had met each other and everyone was excited and standing up and shaking hands and, hey, oh my gosh, we're so excited. And then just a few weeks later, exactly the same thing, a multicam comedy and you walk into the room, everyone's meeting each other for the first time and everyone's just sitting at their place at the table. Everyone's just throwing a nice cursory nod. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. Hello. Hello. Um, and so same situation, but so radically different. And it, it, I don't know, you know, where that, that atmosphere comes from or, or where it stems from. Uh, but it was so interesting to see that it was effectively the same prototype show, but such a different experience. Yeah. And you got, I would assume that the performance and the table rate of the one when everyone's happy was probably a better product well i always think you know i i'm just by my nature 
a better performer, I think, when it's a nice, warm, friendly environment. And not that the pressure is off because, you know, I still take my job seriously, but when it's warm and engaged and everyone is there having a good time and supporting each other, you can find more fun in your performance and you can try things and you feel more liberty to play and experiment. Whereas if it's like a very serious set, then I don't know, I guess it's sort of in your mind creates these lines and barriers that you think, oh, well, I better just do my job. I'm not going to play. I'm just going to just going to do my thing. Uh, don't want to do anything too crazy. I would agree with you that as a performer, especially with more of an improv background, like feeling safe to play, I think helps comedy. But in a room, I got to assume, maybe wrongly, that a room that has a very intense vibe is comes more from the top down. I would understand if you walked in for a table read of a very serious drama, you might get a room of some actors who are like already kind of in the zone. They're like, they're already trying to get into that role. But Uh if you walk in a room and you're like, this is a workplace comedy, AKA we should feel like people who've worked together and know each Uh other and can joke with each other. So it's amazing that you got to have the experience of seeing those two rooms. And I think as an actor, important to know like the rooms you thrive in. But yeah, again, every every actor is is different. Every job is different. And then, you know, the, the other thing to think of is uh, sometimes as actors, we don't think about the big picture sometimes because we're horrible and selfish and we're like, oh, what are they thinking of me? But, you know, the director's got pressure and the producers have got pressure and the writers have got pressure. And, and, and it is these these pressure cooker environments where it, it all stems from from somewhere. Someone's always worried about their job. The director's worried that they're not getting the shots that they need in a day and the writers are worried that the actors aren't performing the words that they've written too well or that dialogue is being cut that they were holding on to whatever it is that there's pressure everywhere and so you, you have to understand that too it's kind of a relief moment when you're on a set and you're stressed and you're like am i doing it right am i hitting my marks am i saying line and then when you kind of look around and realize no one's watching you nobody's focused like they're all worried about their own job and you get to go like right like if if i'm doing something very wrong they'll mm-hmm. let me know yeah it wasn't until i started writing and, and, and directing stuff myself that my eyes opened and was like oh this is what they're this is what they're doing on the other side and acting is such a small part was so insignificant daniel yeah and so then it, it does take the pressure off and I'm much better now at just being like, ah, it's okay if I mess up. With writing and directing your own stuff, when was the, what was the first thing where you really, that really hit you of like kind of the whole machine of it, like the importance of every part, and then it helped you kind of put in perspective the role of the actor? Daniel, I made, I don't know if you remember, um, was it 2012, 2013? And I had these big, naive, bushy, tailed wide-eyed dreams and I was like I'm gonna rent out this place and I'm gonna shoot like six sketches mm. each day for like three days and I'm gonna have like all these sketches and I'd I prepped and I'd, I prepared and I think we were just shooting on little Canon 7Ds and we had two cameras three cameras maybe we had three cameras and that was me rushing into something before I was ready and not understanding the whole process and it was just about filming stuff and then 
you know, we got the sound and, and you could hear the sound guy's wedding band and tapping on the boom pole. And I had friends that I was working with at my day job at the Arclight Theater who were like, yeah, we edit. And then I gave them the footage and then the footage went missing or like, you know, people that um, weren't professional, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm making a, a pig's ear of this, but that was a learning curve in, in terms of, oh, I rushed and I wasn't prepared and I, I should have hired people to, to do this job and not just relied on people that said they could. And so the first like proper, proper time I did it was pretty recently, 2018. I directed a, a short film where I, I put everything into it budgetarily and, and planning and locations. Uh, and that was like, uh, this is how you do it. This is what's, this is the process. Gotcha. But it's almost important to have had that first shoot of trying to get those sketches done with the, a little bit of naivete. Mm-hmm. You kind of took what you learned, the good and the bad from those early, early moments and be like, mm-hmm. okay, if I'm going to do this, you realize if, if you want it done well, you got to hire good people. You got to find yeah, yeah. the right people. In hindsight, I would have rather sent a, a full-on short that, yeah, was a, a better quality. Uh, but I did it, and I, I learned, and it was an experience, and uh, now I know. And the short you did end up making has done well, right? It's been in some yeah. festivals. And- um, it, it did the, the festival rounds, and it won, it won some awards, and then I've been able to use that as a sort of marketing tool to jump onto Ryan Murphy's half director mentorship program. So then I was shadowing on his shows for a little while. Then it's just, it's just been a, a good tool in terms of when I'm writing or, or wanting to make something else to say, hey, I did this. Here's a writing sample. I also would love to direct and to sort of go from there. It's good that you have kind of that, that calling card that's led to other things because you know, there's some people I think are just focused on just acting, but you're, you're kind of doing acting, you're getting into directing. Mm-hmm. Is it the dream or the hope that you keep doing both? Or are you kind of like, I'd like to transition a little more focused into directing or? Um, I guess it stems from a place of, as an actor, uh, sometimes I feel like you're sort of reactive to the business. You're always waiting for the phone to ring for an audition or for a role or you audition and then you get it or you don't get it. 90% of the time you, you don't get it. Um, and so then with, with writing and creating and directing, uh, you sort of can take the onus into your own business and be proactive and be doing something and working towards something and writing something whether that's to sell or whether that's to, to direct, whatever it is. Because I think we're in a similar boat where the ultimate dream is to write and act yeah. in the thing you're directing. Uh-huh. And people do it. You know, the, the sunny in Philadelphia folks do it, Broad City, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and, and Fleabag. So it's, it's not like this crazy pipe dream. It's, it's, it's attainable. When you are writing, do you often mm-hmm. write and think of a part for yourself in what you're writing? It depends. Sometimes, sometimes I do other things I've written that have no role or place for me whatsoever. Um, and sometimes I'll write things with 
the noblest of intentions of not getting attached to it and writing something and saying, this one I'm writing to sell. And then, and then I reach page 75 and then I'm like, oh no, I'm in love with it. Now it's, now it belongs to me and it's in my heart. And then I don't want to just sell it anymore. Then I'm like, I'll take it to my agents and say, I I love it so much that when you send it out, let them know I'd love to direct it as well. And I, it happens every time. I start with the best of intentions, the best of intentions. We're like, this one, this one is just going out into the world. It means nothing to me. And they always end up meaning something to me, which is now why I just write things for myself instead of what I think people want. I feel like that's a coldness. You might just not have like a detached coldness of like, it'd be hard to write something truly that you just didn't uh-huh. care about. Yeah. And I think it would come across in the selling or pitching of it where you're just like, eh, look, this feels like a movie that gets made. Here you go. Yeah. And you'd rather create something where like, this might not be a movie you typically make, but it's a movie I would happily make. Uh-huh. I, I was in a writing class for, for a little while and um, our teacher, I, I was churning out all this stuff. And at one point she said, Dom, your writing is is great but nothing is you're not writing anything that's uh, a blockbuster or anything that's going to sell you need to write a, a romantic comedy and like no that's that's not me interesting note from a teacher you'd think that would be the other way around where it'd be like write what you love first that's where i come from too but i've still heard from multiple places and maybe you've heard this too because you write that you shouldn't write different genres and that you should only stick to the one thing that you're good at. And I guess it, it stems back into acting as well as, is that someone is always trying to pigeonhole you or people say like, just do what you know, do what you know. And then once people know you for that, then you can do other things. But I don't know, I guess acting wise, I've been lucky in terms of being able to transcend genres and time types of show and um, have a really varied acting career. And that's what I would love to, to do in a writing career or directing career as well. Now, like you said, with, uh, with acting, you have been, you know, quite fortunate and I wouldn't say lucky. I'd say you're talented to get these, but you have worked on a variety of genres and styles. Are there any that you kind of prefer? Do you prefer like a, maybe a live multi-cam or single cam sci-fi, a drama, a comic? Like, no, I, I love it all. And they've all got, um, they've all got, not even cons, they've just all got pros, really. Um, I've done a lot of uh, kids' sitcoms, multicam sitcoms, and they're just so fun and joyous, and each week you get a new script, and it's silly and it's fun, and then you get the experience of performing it in front of a live audience every Friday night, which is, it feels like theater, so it's a nice combination of the two, and then I've done genre TV, and that's fun because I I grew up on X-Files and Buffy, and uh, Star Trek and all those things. So getting to experience that kind of storytelling is is a thrill for me personally. It's very rare to, it's really, really, really rare to get to a set and have an unpleasant experience. I think I've had maybe two experiences, maybe three, of being on a set and something actively happening to make it an unpleasant experience. What I, I'll tell you, uh, I won't mention the name because we're not here to talk smack. But 
one of my very first experiences in Los Angeles and working as an actor and we went to Woodland Hills and we were filming in a bank out in Woodland Hills and I'm cognizant enough to to know when is a good time to talk or or to feel out a room and and know that I'm not being intrusive and whatnot and they set out these cash chairs and the series regulars were they put us in a room in this sort of bullpen area in this bank and the series regulars were there and there was me as, as one of my first uh, jobs in LA and one of the other cast people, one of the series regulars was speaking with a British accent. And so, you know, I, there was nothing, no serious conversations happening. And so I said, Oh, uh, whereabouts in England are you from? And Oh boy, the look of disgust that I got, Daniel, the look of disgust. Then we went to shoot the first half of the scene. Like they were shooting in one direction and then we did that. And the PA came over and was like, okay, great. You can go back to your cast chairs. And then we went back to the little bullpen and my cast chair and my belongings had been moved and they had moved me into my own little bullpen on my own. I'd been segregated from the rest of the cast because I guess I had spoken out of turn and asked uh, one of the series regulars where they were from. So that was that one. That is so incredible that like a pretty innocent question. Oh, so innocuous. And also I think it's, it's better coming from you because the fact that you are also speaking of a similar accent being like, I'm asking you because we actually geographically might've been from a closer area and can talk about uh-huh. what it was like being from there. Yeah, or where'd you go and get your baked beans and HP sauce from? Where'd you get your British stuff? The look is one reaction, but then the move of your stuff. Oh, yeah. Let's you know that for whatever reason, this bothered this person so much, Mm -hmm. they had to tell someone else. Such an odd experience, especially being one of my first jobs uh, in LA as well. I'm like, ooh. And that person's name is no. I'm just kidding. Uh-uh. No, I'm not gonna pl- not gonna play that game. What was it like? Because you, like you said, you mentioned X Files and Star Trek. That you got to now be on Star Trek Picard with Patrick mm-hmm. Stewart. Like, what was that like for someone who grew up enjoying his work to be actually not just with Patrick Stewart, but Patrick Stewart as oh this character? Um. Well, I will say this. I, I've, reached a, I've reached a place in my career. When I first started in, in my career and an audition would come in, especially when I was in England, an audition would come in, come in maybe once every five months, once every six months. And so there was this pressure to be like, oh my God, I've got to book it, I've got to book it, I've got to book it. This, is the, this might be my last chance. And then since I've been in LA, the, I, I just feel like there are more opportunities and, and that sort of slid away. And I reached a, a very healthy place in terms of saying like, I'm going to go for this audition. And if they don't like what I did, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, there'll be other opportunities and I'm just going to give them what I want to give them. But when I found out that they were making Picard, I turned into the worst actor version of myself where I immediately called my manager and probably emailed her at the same time with the deadline articles and uh, the Hollywood Reporter articles saying like, they're making Picard. And I, I distinctly remember 
writing in an email saying like, I will be a sliding door. I will be a rock. I will be anything on this show. And then finding out um, they had sort of fake production names for it. And I would like go over all the production reports and I'd be like, oh, well, it's this one. This, this is the show because this is the producer uh, that was listed in the deadline article. And so I pieced everything together, found out who was casting it, went down there personally, wrote a handwritten note, reached out through like my network of casting director friends that I, I had made over the past 13 years and sent Facebook messages and said, oh my God, if you can put a good word in for me in this, off, like, oh man, I, I became the, the very person I hate to get to read for that role. I, I got to read. But I remember that being one of the worst auditions I've, I've had in living memory because, because I was so anxious. I became, I became that person I was directly out of drama school. I put so much pressure on myself and was like, got to get it, got to get it, got to get it, got to get it, got to get it. And, and that didn't make me feel good. And I didn't have the best audition in the room because there was a lot of techno babble and there was a lot of uh, sort of technical jargon. And I messed up every time on the third page on the same section. Um, and God bless them. The casting directors were so wonderful. And they were saying like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to go outside and read it and, and just go over it again? And I was like, no, no, I know it. I know it. Like I've, I've just been reading it constantly for 24 hours and they were so good. They were so wonderful and so generous and they let me do it a fourth or a fifth time. And, you know, it, it was one of those things where it was all shrouded in secrecy as well because they didn't tell me anything about the character. I got the audition sides and because I'm a Star Trek fan, I was reading it thinking, well, I don't know what race I am. If it's a Klingon, it's going to read very differently. If it's a Klingon, then if it's a Cardassian, then if it's a Ferengi and I don't know what race I am. And it wasn't until the I got in the room and, and they were like, so you're a lizard creature. You're this like 600 pound lizard creature and you can't move your neck. And it's like, okay, so this is, it's nothing that I know. What a tangent. What a, what a ride we just went on. I love that your super fandom of something came out in such a positive way. And I think you would agree that, you know, telling anyone you know that could help you in this biz is a good thing and putting yourself out there. But ultimately when you're in the room and you're doing the audition, you gotta be mm -hmm. kind and you gotta have done the work. Like you wouldn't be like, Oh, just email and write these casting people and beg them to give you jobs. Oh then, no. I've, I've never done it before. And I don't, it, it didn't make me feel good in the doing of it. I was, I don't know what came over me, Daniel. A form of madness. But I, a, a form of madness came over me and all I could see was Star Trek. And you, you were like, all right, I see that they're making Star Trek Picard and I need to be involved in some way. One of the reasons I wanted to move to America to act was because I loved, I loved X-Files and I loved Buffy and I loved Star Trek. And it's one of the reasons why I moved to America was because I loved that, that kind of programming. Yeah. What was it like? Because as a fan, when you met, Patrick Stewart. I cried. I, I cried so many times. I cried so many times that the contact lens person thought that my contact lenses were irritating my eyes. The first time I went up to, they were shooting some stuff in Santa Clarita and I was going up for prosthetic fittings. I went up there, had the fitting, and then someone out of the blue, a PA came up and said, hey, Jonathan Frakes would love to meet you. And it was so unexpected. And then I was like, 
oh, okay, great, cool. And my knees went weak and they walked me into, they were having lunch at the time and he just stood up and threw his arms open and was like, Mr. Vop, welcome to the family. And that's, that's, oh gosh. That's all you need to hear is, is someone, they were so excited. They were all so excited. Well, that's, that's fantastic where it's like you describe these good sets and bad sets. That sounds like the set you'd love where mm-hmm. it's clearly a family, a welcoming family. Uh-huh. And as uh-huh. a fan to see how kind and loving and like inviting they are, like just has to make you an even bigger fan. It's really great to hear uh-huh. that someone who I'm also a fan of, like Patrick Stewart is, of course he's great. Of course he's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was the, it was the greatest. Now is the part of Almost Almost Famous where I invite my special guest, insult comic Raz Clifford. Oh, Raz. Yeah, he's going to join us for a quick second. He likes to knock my guests down a peg, keeping them humble, which with Dominic you don't have to worry about, but he likes to get to them before they're too famous. Yeah, get to me. Okay, let's get Raz in here. Oh, hello, folks. It's Raz Clifford. Oh, who are we talking to today? Hi, Raz. It's Dom. Yes, Dominic Burgess. Dom. This is the man from all the TV shows nobody watches. Give it up for him. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Dominic, Dom has a big fan base in his head, which makes sense because there's a lot of room in there, plenty of space. Raz, I do have a big head. We're in, we're in a quarantine. I'll tell you a story, Raz. Oh, here we not go. To, not to step on your toes. It's okay. I need a nap. Raz. I, I physically have a big head. I literally, like my head is, is big. And so when I shop for caps, I have to go to a special website that will accommodate for big heads. Um, but now that we're in quarantine, I'm having the same problem with masks because I can't find masks that will fit uh, my head. Anyway, Raz, I cut you off. I'm so sorry. It's, it's quite all right. That was a riveting story. I'm so glad we got to hear it. Do you think that paper, Possibly the mass people are trying to give you a hint of like, maybe you should go without. Maybe, we, we, maybe we're good with maybe. you. We, we don't need to try to make any special masks. One of my favorite things about your acting career is how many shows where they put you in full prosthetics and makeup. It's like they cast Dom and then they immediately go, let's hide that face. <laughs> and he always ends up being some type of hideous alien monster thing. And then they go, okay, now we can finally film this guy. <laughs> That's a true story. That's true. Yeah, most things you see this guy in, you'll be very pleased that you don't actually have to see Dominic. You get to just see the whole makeup team hard at work. Yeah. Boom, you got Raz. Thank you so much for letting me stop by, okay. Dominic. Thanks, Raz. Goodbye. All right. Thank you, Raz. Get out of here. Oh, hopefully that, was, that wasn't too painful. No, not at all. I get it. I'll get Raz at any time. Through the years, do you feel like you've ever gotten bad advice on your career. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we kind of touched on it already in, in terms of people telling you, like, stick to, to one thing. Especially, you know, when it comes to writing, at least, at least until a production company is paying you to write something, write whatever you want to write. Uh, but in terms of bad acting advice, yeah. I think the worst, not even advice, and you, you were here at ground zero during this experience, uh, of this showcase that that we were a part of and being led to believe that the industry is is bad and that 
people's meanness is an excuse, like using meanness as a way of, of then following up by saying, this is the way that the industry is. So I'm going to be mean to you and you've got to lose 20 pounds and you've got to lose 40 pounds and you've got to do this. And we're helping you because this is the way the industry is. And that, that destructive kind of advice really, really makes me bristle. And it really makes me angry. That was such a destructive process for me, again, personally, that I think you can attest. You found me crying in a stairwell mm -hmm. of a basement uh, of some studio because I, I, I felt so torn apart by, by that process and uh, what was going on. But yeah, I guess uh, meanness veiled this advice. I agree with you. This business isn't mean. This business isn't cruel. It's not even really cutthroat. It's no. There are mean cutthroat assholes in this mm -hmm. business. And it's those people, anyone I agree with you that's like, look, I'm, give, I'm telling it like it is. This is just the way the business is. You can, uh -huh. you can flag that immediately, all the listeners, and know it's BS. Anyone that tells you that you have to do anything a certain way just makes me bristle. Same. Because there's no one way into this industry. There's no one acting method that will work universally for everyone. You just have to be kind to yourself in, in this industry and, and just uh, do what works for you. I agree. That's some solid advice. Because of doing this job, there's the potential that maybe you already have, but you could be on a, a guest on a late night show. Uh, have you ever thought of like what a, what's a story you'd want to tell? Gosh, what do you want? Do you want what story do you want? You can have you can have one of these stories. Oh, okay. you can have the near death experience that I gave someone else, or the near death experience that I experienced. Oh my gosh! What do you want? Let's go with the first one: the near death experience oh, that you gave someone else. Oh man. Okay, but I'll set you up like it's a late night show. Like, okay, we're... Oh, great, cool. <laughs> so we've been chatting and you seem like a pretty maybe risk-averse person, but I guess you've, you've said you have had some, a near-death experience, but we're not, we're not interested in that one. We're interested in this near-death experience that supposedly you gave someone else. How does, how does that happen? How does that work? Okay. I'm going to take you back to 2007. Great time. Uh, we're in England. We're in Fulham in London. And I'm a Saturday boy for a real estate uh, company. Uh, okay. Uh, we're going to have to backtrack. We're going to have to sidestep. What is that sounds like, like a very shady thing. Like, like, Oh, just send, send the Saturday boys to like wreck that house or something or some of the Saturday boys. To, what it is, is, I worked for a real estate company or a lettings agency uh, in London on Saturdays. Um, and during the week, I worked at a, a DVD store called HMV. Um, but on Saturdays, I worked for this letting agency. And I was the Saturday boy. And it meant that I wasn't on any kind of commission. I had no responsibility other than picking people up or people that came into the office, driving them to a house and opening the door and saying, this is the property that we have for rent. I had no, I had no responsibilities in terms of, you know, if people had questions, I'd be like, as something you should ask the, the, the people in the office, I'm, I'm just the Saturday boy. 
And when you said Saturday board, they knew exactly what that meant. Oh, yeah. So this woman comes into the office and we have this whatever appointment time it is, like 10.30 in the morning appointment. I'm driving her. She's in uh, the passenger seat. She's on my uh, left-hand side because in England we're on the right-hand side uh, driving. The wheel's on the right-hand side. Um, So we're driving and we get to a roundabout, which are commonplace in England. I do my due diligence. I look left. I look right. I look left. I look right. I'm, you know, waiting for traffic to pass. Everything passes. I start pulling out and then there's a thunk. And then on the bonnet, on the hood of the car is this lady. And she slides down the hood of my car. The woman who I'm going to show this house to, my my passenger, screams the most horrific blood-curdling scream. I get out of the car. This woman gets out of the car. She's still screaming. And then on the ground is this old lady writhing on the ground. And she's got these cartons of milk that one of them has spilled. And so there's milk flowing into the road that looks like blood. I call 999. And then there's all these pedestrians and, and they're running up the 999 dispatcher and I'm saying like, oh, there's been a road traffic accident. There's a lady and she's been hit. And the 911 dispatcher says, okay, love. And uh, how old's this lady? (laughs) And because this old lady on the ground was within earshot, I didn't want her to think that I thought she was old. And so I was like, oh, she's maybe 50. (laughs) And all of these pedestrians gathered around her were looking at me, shaking their heads and pointing up at me like, no, she's older than that. And so I'm going, uh, she's uh, maybe 60 and they keep pointing up. Uh, anyway, we settle on an age. I'd probably say like, oh, maybe she's mid 70s. It's like the price is right over there. Like the, like the pedestrians are like, higher, go up. Oh my gosh. And she's, she's writhing on the ground. Um, anyway, the police came and I've never been in trouble in my life and they're, they're breathalyzing me and I don't, you know me, I, I very, very rarely drink. My passenger who I was going to show this house to, she's still trembling and she's got mucus flowing from her nose. And <laughs> So anyway, I don't end up showing this lady this property. I go back to the office this was very big of me at the time because I'm, I'm normally like, I don't want to rock the boat and I'm, I'm normally very like, oh, um, yeah, 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 everything's fine. And they were like, okay, great. Well, uh, don't forget you've got a, uh, a 12 o'clock appointment. And I was like, no, I, I feel like I've got to, I have to go home. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. So I went home and I followed up with the police and the lady was taken to a hospital. She didn't have any injuries. Thank goodness. Uh, I sent her some flowers. Well, thankfully, no, you know, no one was hurt. And it seemed like no one was you hurt. Went, we're going slow enough, and this woman just ran out. But I love how, oh like, in a way, that almost feels very, like, cinematic, where it's like, of course she has milk, and of course the milk breaks of and spills in the street. And, like, it's classic old lady getting hit by a car. Like, it really <laughs> is. It's just, like, it's a real Saturday boy's nightmare. It is a Saturday boy's nightmare. Yeah, that's, I feel like you could definitely write a short called Saturday boy's nightmare. Yep. That's my story. Dom, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on Almost Almost Famous. What are some projects you're currently working on for the listeners to keep their eyes peeled? I just 
did an episode of, of something called Them Covenant for Amazon, which is a new horror anthology. And I worked on a film called Breaking News in Yuba County with Alice and Jenny and Regina Hall. Can't wait to see those things. Thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been Almost Almost Famous. Thank you.